Tasmania is the full stop at the bottom of the world, and we live on an island of stories. For years now, the Tamer Valley Writers' Festival has celebrated our great thinkers, writers and readers, and now we're excited to share these insights globally. I'm Lyndon Rigol, and throughout this series, my colleague Annie Warburton and I will be talking to writers, playwrights, comedians, poets, editors, and all of those who share a love of the written word, right here on the Tamer Valley Writers' Festival podcast. Robbie Arnott is a Hobart-based writer whose debut family saga with a magical realist twist, Flames, set the world on fire in 2018. Winner of the Sydney Morning Herald's Best Young Novelist Award and the Margaret Scott Prize in the Tasmanian Premier's Literary Prizes, Arnott was recently named the inaugural Hedberg Writer-in-Residence at the University of Tasmania, where he will spend 12 weeks engaging with the university's culture and working on his third novel, a follow-up to this year's The Rain Heron. The Rain Heron is Arnott's most transcendent work yet, a beautiful and devastating eco-fable that feels both intimately Tasmanian and somehow inexplicably outside of time. It's the story of Wren, a woman living in the remote frontier of a country engaged in brutal and ongoing conflict, who's pulled into a military search with the goal of harnessing the power of a mythical creature. Through this central thread, the Rain Heron explores our longing for control, our abuse of the sacred, and the stunning beauty and treachery of the natural world. It's a mesmerising piece of fiction which, as it takes flight, solidifies without question Arnott's place in the pantheon of our finest novelists. In this episode, I talk to Robbie about nature, narrative, and his meteoric rise from debut novelist to becoming one of Tasmania's most celebrated authors. Robbie Arnott, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Lyndon. It's great to be here. Now, I want to start with your early life and where your love of writing comes from and how it developed. So can you talk a bit about your childhood and your love of stories there? Yeah, I was really lucky. I grew up in northern Tasmania. Um, I grew up in Launceston, but I spent every summer at Greens Beach at the mouth of the Tamar River, which is where my mother's family are from. And so I spent a lot of time just hanging around in the dunes in the bush and running around on beaches and riding a bike around with, without my helmet, which I got a lot of trouble for. And coupled with that very outdoor sort of childhood, I was just surrounded by books all the time. Um, everyone in my family is just a big reader and it's something that was always pushed on us. And my parents read a lot and my uncles and aunts do and my cousins. And so reading was just something that was just integral to my life always. And I really enjoyed it. And so when it came to writing, it just felt like the most obvious thing to do from the age of about 10 or 12, I guess. Um, I loved reading so much. It's all I wanted for my birthday presents were books and writing just it never felt like much of a decision I don't think I ever sat down and thought I really want to start writing I want to take up writing it just felt like a natural thing to do um, I never really think about what I do anyway but um, this particularly felt more natural than anything was there anyone who kind of pushed you in that regard was there anyone who gave you a tap on the back and said keep at it yeah I had some really great English teachers um, so really lucky I went to Punchbowl Primary School in Launceston just in Newstead and then I got really lucky and got a scholarship to Scotch Oakburn. And I had some great English teachers there. I had um, Angela Fraser, who now teaches at St Mary's down here. And she really, really pushed me along. I had another great teacher, Sharon Beattie. Um, she really supported my writing, particularly all the way up until year 12. Um, and so to be surrounded by those people at the time, when you're, you're a kid, you're probably a bit bolshy and confident. You don't really think about it too much. But it really did make a difference having people around saying, this is worth your time, you should keep doing this. Um, I wasn't good at anything else really. So um, that support, and I think a lot of writers find that um, when you have a really strong English teacher, someone who supports you and goes well beyond what's expected of them in a classroom sense. 
um, yeah, made a huge difference. So one of the things that's really interesting about what you've just said is that you've had this love of literature, but also this kind of coastal idyllic childhood by the sounds of it. And I would say that nature is integral to everything that I've seen you write. Why, why is nature so important to you? Why is the landscape so important to you? Oh, I wish I had a really simple answer for this. Um, the simplest way to put it is that I think the world is just as interesting as the people in it. Um, I love stories that focus on the interiority of people's lives. Um, recent examples, I guess, Elena Ferrante, Sally Rooney, I, I love those books, but oh, I can't do that. Um, it doesn't come to me naturally to speak about the intensity of inner experience of people. Um, what comes naturally to me is writing about the world and how people fit in it or don't fit in it. Um, and I'm always drawn to writing about a place. I guess when I was younger and I was at university with you and we were stumbling through our English degrees, I was reading a lot of what was fashionable for young men to read then, like Raymond Carver, Ernest Hemingway. And I thought I wanted to write this, this tight, you know, minimalism, realism. And I just sucked at it and I was terrible at it. And I thought, oh, people going on about place, that's boring, everywhere's interesting, so why bother writing about it? And when I eventually, six or seven years later, started writing about Tasmania and writing about wildernesses, both imagined and real, it's almost like I just realised this is what I should have been doing all along because I love bushwalking and I love snorkelling and I love fishing and spending all this time in nature, I realised that's what I was passionate about and setting stories there and telling stories through the frame of a landscape is, is what I like to do. Um, and it almost feels like a fluke that I figured that out because no one told me. I just stumbled through things until it happened. So I remember gritty realist Robbie Arnett, yeah. <laughs> who I thought was going to stick around for quite some time. And so it came as a surprise to me, both in Flames and The Rain Heron, that there is quite a mythical, mystical, magical realist side that has emerged. Why, why do you feel that you want to heighten the natural world as well? Why do you take it that extra level, do you think? I really think writing and thinking imaginatively is really important. And I think it's really important to fiction and also to the way we think and react to things. And it's something I started doing because of the influence of many other authors, obviously. But also I just, it felt like a way to express how the world feels rather than how it actually is. And that's what I wanted to do. And when writing about the way something feels, it can be more, more true to make something up. I know that's counterintuitive. So when I go about inventing things in the landscapes or inventing some magical realism, I have a little test I do it myself. I'll go, does this chime with the world I'm setting it in? Does this fit neatly or does it distract? And if it fits neatly, is it an imaginative extension? And then I lean into that and I think, I, I'm enjoying this. I, this is the stuff I liked reading um, before I became horribly pretentious at university. Um, this is the stuff that I, this imaginative thinking and, and writing and seeing a new world open up to me within the lens of something I can recognise. I just enjoyed that so much as a kid. And so I try to write like that now. Um, and so if I feel like it extends in a natural and interesting way, I'll lean into it. If I feel that it jars and it's just a bit of made up stuff for the sake of being a bit different or shocking, I just don't, I leave it alone because I feel like it's not adding anything to what's most important and that's the world I'm, I'm kind of extending on. 
I, I treat that as the most important part and the little extensions is just, yeah, flights of fancy, kind of. So on that note, I mean, the rain heron is a fascinating creation. Can you talk a little bit about how that creature developed? Where did it start and, and did it change over time as you were redrafting this thing? Yeah, it did. Um, it all came from, where it came from never changed. And what I wanted to do with creating this mythical creature was have an animal that somehow captures both the beauty and the savagery of nature. Something that is like both completely stunning and captivating and just gorgeous, but also terrifying and dangerous and could kill you if you get on the wrong side of it. And, and I started trying to come up with these elements, like what would it look like? And originally it was quite insubstantial and almost ghost-like. And, and then I realized that I, I was just trying to write about a storm something that you see on the horizon that you can't look away from and is so amazing, but also if it gets so close to you, you need to hide. So I ended up turning that into an animal over quite a long process. Um, and it wasn't always called the rain heron, rain heron. It had a bunch of other names for a while. Um, my editor came up with a title, the rain heron. Um, and as soon as he said it, I thought, that's so obvious. Um, yeah, but I'm really glad he did. So I kind of did it that way, just trying to invent this totemic creature. And you've talked about the fact that it is, it's, it's beautiful, but also brutal. Is that, is that how you feel about the natural world? And where does that feeling come from, this idea of both the very special, wonderful, awe-inspiring side of nature and also the destructive and threatening side of nature? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And well, what I wanted to have become clear through this work, and not that I try to be a very didactic writer, but is humanity's insignificance in many ways. I get really frustrated when I'm reading something where there's a myth or a fable or a kind of imaginary creature that is very, very concerned with humanity because that's not how nature acts and it's not how animals act. They're not fussed at all with people um, unless they see them as a threat or as food. Um, so I wanted to have this creature that feels that these people are drawn towards, but it doesn't really care about people at all because why would it? Even though it's this completely magical made up kind of entrancing creature, I wanted to have be completely indifferent to human existence in a way that it will be really brutal, but only if provoked. And it will be really amazing, but you've got to stay away from it. Um, and the key to it is that it doesn't care about people. And I think that's a real folly of human existence is projecting their own emotions onto the natural world because the natural world doesn't project back. Mm. Is, is the rain heron as a being, as a creature, I mean, the title would imply that it's it's the origin of the story. Is that actually where this novel started for you or did it start somewhere else? Kind of two answers really, I guess. So I knew I always wanted to write about this mythical creature, but at the same time I knew I didn't want to be the main character in the book because um, that wouldn't be a very long book. <laughs> and also I, I didn't, couldn't sustain that over the course of more than, I don't know, 10 pages. Um, I wanted to write about this, woman living on the side of the mountain who's fled a coup. Um, I was really drawn to this idea of writing about a survivalist who's not an expert survivalist, but just making it happen in a really resilient and stoic way. And when I started folding her story into the story of the rain heron as well, that's where the novel started emerging. I, I didn't, I'm not one of those writers who has like a big chart where they plot out the entire structure and plot of everything before they that, that I can't even understand. Like I admire people who can do that, but I could never do it. I'm kind of 
one or two steps ahead at any one time of where the story is going. Why do you think that is? I'm just not very organised. <laughs> um, but also, I, I, I can't have a whole story plotted out then write to those, plot, those beats the way a showrunner of a TV series would. Because I'll just get bored. I'm really easily distracted. I'll think, I already know what happens at the end. Now I have to write it all and I'm bored of it already. And then it'll lose a lot of its kind of magic for me. And if you're bored while writing it, you're not going to write anything any good, I think. So partly it's due to keeping myself interested to keep the story as dynamic as possible and the, and the prose as strong as I can. Um, but also it's just the nature of how I write, I guess. Um, if there was a trick to writing a great novel, then everyone would know how to do it, I guess. One of the things that you do a lot, and I'm intrigued to see if this is part of keeping yourself interested, but you are pretty well known for switching perspective and changing your style as you write. How do you know when a voice is the right voice for a particular section of a work that you're working on? I don't, um, ever. Um, it's really funny, when a book comes out, and I, I do this as a reader, you read it and you think, this person knew exactly what they were doing the whole time, here it is in my hands, they must have been so confident in this or it wouldn't be here in my hands. And when my first book came out, Flames, which has heaps of different narrators, and I didn't even have a contract when I was writing that book, I was just doing that to amuse myself and seeing if I could write a novel that had all these different perspectives and genres and narratives. So in terms of how do you know it's right, I was just going, well, it feels okay to me and I'm still entertained and it feels right. But it, that was all there was to it. Um, and with the rain heron in this one, it kind of keeps the same third person narrator or third person omniscient sort of structure for most of the book and at the end that shifts. And I can't really explain that without giving away the plot of the novel a little bit, but Again, that was an instinctual thing. I thought I've had this character who's been referred to the whole time. I feel like the last part of the book needs to come through their voice in order to flesh them out properly in a way because it's their story and it's time they started telling it. But again, just, just an instinctual hunch. Like, yeah, I, I didn't know if it would, would work. So Flames is... I would say almost aggressively Tasmanian. It really covers large parts of the state. And the rain heron seems to exist in a way that has elements of Tasmania. I feel like there's a recognisably Tasmanian element to it, but then it's also in a kind of third place that is really difficult to, to track and understand. What, what informed your choice of setting for this novel? I didn't want it to be just set in Tasmania um, because I was inventing this whole myth, more myths and magical realism and different things. I, I thought setting in Tasmania gives it too much narrative baggage there because then the story suddenly becomes trying to figure out its relation to Tasmania and it just gets a bit too cluttered. Um, and also I've done that in my first book and, you know, I pretty much am a one-trick pony, but I didn't want that to be too obvious. Um, and so I tried to invent this place that felt a little bit timeless and a little bit not one specific country. There's lots of natural elements that come from either the northern or southern hemisphere, from arboreal conifer forests to granite coasts to a plateau filled with, um, with um, a bunch of trees that you probably see around Bothell. So it's, it's all sorts of things that are melded together and my Tasmanian bias comes through in many places in it. But I wanted to, to leave the story sort of clean, basically in a way that I could still write about nature but not have the narrative baggage of an existing place. 
Mm. One of the other things that I think is unusual or maybe surprising is that it's quite a feminine novel and particularly Ren as your protagonist. What, what drew you to making women a central part of it? Again, it wasn't something I did that consciously. I didn't sit down, I'm going to write this book about these women. It didn't really come to me like that. I wanted to write about these people who were struggling against certain things. And when I was writing about this hermit living on the side of a mountain, it became clear, at least to me, that she, was, she had this kind of resilience to everything that just, to me, felt like a, a woman. Mm. And I can't explain it any better than that because there's no... Um, secret herbs and spices or anything that makes this clear, but she was enacting this very kind of silent, stoic resilience that I have experienced with a lot of the women in my family and the women in my life and the just carrying on with it despite what's happening. And it just felt more feminine to me. When I thought about that character being a man, it was very much this kind of white hero out and being thorough in the wilderness, kind of struggling away bravely and nobly despite a lot. And it just, that didn't feel right to me. I couldn't capture that character. I didn't like that character. Whereas when I had Ren, I, I kind of just liked her and I liked the way she went about it. And she just felt like a woman to me. And the same thing with Lieutenant Harker, who comes into the book too. Her kind of um, determination, her unflashy, unshowy way of getting things done no matter how much it costs her, again, felt like this kind of feminine trait to me. Um, but I get asked this question sometimes. I just have to say they just felt like women. I tried to write them as best as I could. Um, and that's all there is any writer can do, I think. People talk on the subject of mythology. People talk in an almost mythological way about second books as kind of this, particularly when you've had quite a successful first book and Flames was really well received. People talk about the second book as kind of this crippling, frightening challenge that is not the, the fun that you've talked about with Flames of I'm not writing this for anyone. Now the pressure's on. Was that true for you? And how, how did you manage this second book syndrome that people talk about? It was a bit true for me, yeah. Um, I guess I managed it a few ways. Um, one in that I live in Tasmania, so I'm not surrounded by this big culture of... Um, writers drinking martinis, um, bickering and being competitive with each other, which you find in bigger cities. Everyone here is just really nice and supportive, um, which I found consistently my whole life, but particularly since I started writing books as well. Um, another thing, this, this isn't universal, but with Flames, I use so many different styles and techniques and everything. I could go back and look at that book and go, what actually worked really well and what didn't work so well? Um, I was really lucky that it got kind of a good response, but it was very clear through the reviews and reader responses which parts of the book people liked more. Um, not that that determined how I chose to write, but it did kind of inform my own thinking of it a bit. I managed to go back through and go, well, what's this style that works best? And I kind of picked a style from there that I was most comfortable writing and people luckily seemed to have liked as well. So then I had a framework of voice and tone and rhythm and an approach to language and description and that kind of third person, almost at arm's length characterization without any internal monologue. So I had this sort of style that I could pursue. So I felt really lucky in that respect. That, that wouldn't work for everyone because not everyone writes as the weird polyphonic first novel that is just kind of all over the place. <laughs> um, 
yeah, so living in Tasmania and then having that to, to kind of hinge off helped me a bit. It sounds like, I'm slightly shocked here, it sounds like you're quite comfortable reading reviews of your work and reading criticism of your work. Is that true? Yeah, my fiancé reads them first, generally. Okay. <laughs> um, and then she'll tell me whether I... Does she protect you from the worst of the worst? When you love someone, you can't hide anything from them. <laughs> so I can know by her face what it's like. But no, I, I'm comfortable. I don't know. I, I'm not that precious about it. Partly, I guess, just I've never had cause to be. But also, I, before I was a novelist, I worked in advertising and you get pretty brutal feedback every day in advertising about things that you've worked and put a bit of yourself into. And so I was just kind of so used to having that sort of feedback that the way it works in books and literature is everyone kind of, if they say something negative, they generally try and um, tell you why they're saying it. And you can kind of have a conversation about it or feel justified in what they've said, as opposed to a creative director throwing your work across the room and telling you that you're going to be working late and that your work's crap. So I kind of shed off all that soft outer skin by the time I started writing novels, um, which was lucky. <laughs> Your career in advertising, I imagine, would be quite intense. What's your strategy for how you balance the different worlds that you inhabit in terms of your creativity as well? Yeah, there's no strategy. It's chaos. Um, I, yeah, I have a full-time job. My work's great. They're really supportive. Like They're really supportive of my books and my writing. Uh, they look after me really well. At the same time, I still have a full-time job. And I have to do other stuff like go to the shops and wash the sheets and everything everyone has to do. So at some point, I'm writing my books. And it's just whenever I have time. Often it's in the morning. Often it's on the weekends. I was doing it for a couple of hours before I came in here. Um, yeah, it's just chaos. But it's what I want to be doing. Um, I just feel lucky that I have the energy and drive to do it right now. Um, but yeah, you, I, you always hear writers talk about their routine and their structure and how they write 500 words and they make a peppermint tea and meditate. And uh, I don't have the time or the organization to do any of that it's just pillar to post and hopefully it works do you do you feel it necessary to schedule writing time at all or do you just squeeze it in when you can squeeze it in it's just a constant conversation i'm having in my head with myself about what am i doing that afternoon this that evening oh, i'll do it then oh no i have to go to that dinner thing that my aunt organized okay i'll wake up at 4 30 the next morning and do it then oh no i slept in uh uh, there goes my weekend. That's kind of how it works, really. Um, I need a better system, I guess. But... So one of, the, well, one of the things that's changing for you in that regard is that the University of Tasmania has just announced you as their, and correct me if I get this wrong, um, their first Hedberg writer-in-residence. Yeah. What, what, I think that's right. Yeah. What, will that change, what will that change about the way that you operate and what, what is that as an opportunity? Yeah, it's, it's probably the biggest thing that's happened to me uh, writing-wise ever, really. I feel really fortunate and grateful. So basically, I'll get three months with an office at the university just to write. And I'll be running a couple of teaching workshops too, but it's vastly time. It's just spent for writing. And my work has given me the three months off, which is really nice of them. Um, yeah, so I'm just going to be going to an office every day and working on my third book. Um, so I'm really excited by it because I'll be like, I won't be doing any of that chaotic stuff I was talking about before. I'll just be probably having a peppermint tea and med meditating sometimes. Um, but yeah, I'll just be working on my new book. 
here in Tasmania, and it's, it's set in Tasmania too, so that's handy. So I can duck up to the Tamer Valley when I need to, where it's where it's set. So yeah, hopefully it goes well. I might just go crazy. I might have all this time in front of me and some blank pages, and I'll just go mad. But yeah, it's a good thing. Are you able to tell us a little bit about this next project that you're working on? Yeah, I, I think I'm allowed to. Yeah, I am. If anything, uh, my publishing company can just slap me on the wrist. Um, it's a novel set in the Tamer Valley, just in the dying stages of World War II. And it's really just based on one season of my grandfather's life. So he grew up on, a, on an apple orchard in Sidmouth. And um, his two older brothers are away at war and he's, he was stuck on the orchard with his father, who was a survivor of uh, both Gallipoli and the Somme. And well, back then they called shell shock, but we'd call PTSD now. And my grandfather thought he was gonna have to go to war pretty soon and he knew it was happening quickly, but he really wanted a boat. And the only way he could make money was by killing rabbits and selling their pelts to the army to be used to turn into Snapchats. So that's all he did all the summer. He killed as many rabbits as he could as the future kind of rushed at him on this orchard in the Tamer Valley. So I thought I'd write a book about that, and that's what I'm doing. Um, yeah, it's, there's no magical realism whatsoever. No magical realism? No, no mythologies. <laughs> it's pretty straight, really. Are you, are you finding that a challenge in itself to divorce yourself from that heightened reality? No, I'm not actually, because I'm still writing about Tasmania um, and I'm writing about the environment a lot and the places I know that I've always loved. So I'm not finding it too difficult because sometimes a story just comes to you and other times you have to chase it around for ages. And I just feel really lucky that this, I feel like this story's kind of come to me. Um, now I've got to figure the rest of it out. So who knows, there might be, I don't know, an Alaskan sea dragon coming out of the Tamar at some point if I lose, lose track of things. But at the moment, it's pretty, pretty real. Do you think that you have an obligation as a Tasmanian writer to, to be feeding the pool of Tasmanian stories? Or is that just something that you're drawn to because you love it? Yeah, I don't think I have an obligation. I think if I thought that and wrote that way, um, things would become quite didactic. Um, it's just what I'm drawn to. Uh, I think if you, the only obligation I guess I feel that I have as a writer is to try to pursue things that I think people will want to read and find interesting. The, the worst thing I think I do is just focus on th myself or things that I'm preoccupied with. I think being interesting is the most pop, most um, important thing. Now, there's been some recent news about flames and a possible uh, television adaptation. How is, how is that process proceeding in, in what is a pretty challenging time to get a television series happening? Yeah, so there's, there's pretty cool news. Uh, we got contacted oh, last year or even earlier than that about a, public, a um, production company from Sydney were interested in possibly turning on a TV show. And we said, yes, of course, this, this will never happen, but have a go. Um, and so then they got funding from the Tasmanian government to do the first round of production, which was turning it from a book into a synopsis and screenplay. So I got to work uh, via Zoom with uh, Marie Cardi and a couple of other screenwriters to uh, try and turn it into a TV show. And we've done that. And now the production company is trying to get further funding to actually go ahead and make it. So it's still a big long shot. But it was a really cool experience. And if it does happen, it'll all be filmed down here in Tasmania or with as much Tasmanian talent and cast as possible. And fingers crossed some network picks it up. But yeah, it's all out of my hands. 
Is it, is it all out of your hands in the sense that you, you would rather stay in prose or have you entertained the idea of, of having a, a hand in the production of a series like yeah. that? Yeah. So I was involved in the first round of screenplaying it um, and I really enjoyed that, but I'm not experienced in that area. Um, it's something I'd like to learn more about, but at this stage I wouldn't come in and say, oh, I'm doing this, I'm going to write episode three or something because I have no idea how to do that. Um, uh, I'd be really interested in kind of working on the show almost in a, like a script consultant way if they want to ask questions about the plot of what I was thinking with the book and what I think about things. But mostly I just like to watch and see how they do it and try and pick up a few skills because I'm just interested. Yeah, it's just a whole new discipline. But I'm going to keep writing books for the moment though. Yeah. So 2018 was not an especially long time ago, but that is the time when flames first appeared in the world. How has life changed for you in those two years? Has it really changed significantly or are you still the guy who washes the sheets and feeds the cat and does all of those things? Yeah, well, someone's got to feed the cat. Otherwise it meows all night. It's annoying. Um, yeah, no, life hasn't really changed that much. Like I still have my job, uh, live in the same house, obviously. Um, yeah, like it's, it, I get to do stuff like this, which is cool. Um, I don't feel, the most significant change I think really is I don't feel I'm being self-indulgent when I'm spending my spare time writing now because I think my family and friends understand that it's actually something that um, is worth doing. It's not, why didn't Robbie come to the reunion? Why didn't Robbie do this? Oh, he's at home fiddling away on his keyboard. Um, it kind of seems to make sense when they can hold a book in their hands. Um, yeah, I, I feel less guilty about doing it now because I feel like it's, it's paying off a bit. But no, life, life hasn't really changed. And I, and I think if you're looking for your life to change by getting a book published, then you're looking in the wrong areas. Um, the biggest pleasure in writing and publishing books comes, still comes from the act of writing itself. And the pleasure of crafting something and realising it's working and, and chiming for you, that's, that's the best it gets. And it's, it's a great thing, actually, that that's as good as it gets because it's a very pure experience. Um, the only other like, amazing thing that can happen is if someone just comes up and tells you they like something you wrote. Like, you can't really beat that. Someone you've never met says, oh, that, that really meant something to me. It uh, puts a spring in my step for a week if that happens. Um, I can't believe it. Because there's something I came up with at my kitchen table while my cat was smacking me in the face. So, yeah, that's, that's as much as it changes, but it's really good. Mm. Robbie Arnott, I love the rain, Heron. Thank you so much for joining us on the Tampa Valley Writers Festival podcast. Thank you very much, Lyndon, and thanks for having me. The Tamer Valley Writers Festival podcast series is sponsored by Events Tasmania, M Visuals, and the award-winning Turner Steelhouse Distillery at Grindelwald, home of Three Cuts Gin, the perfect accompaniment to a night of reading. For more information on any books mentioned in this program, please visit Petrarch's, Launceston's major bookshop, and a wonderful supporter of the Tamer Valley Writers Festival.